So one of the things that obviously is unique about our situation as a church, certainly not only us, but certainly churches around this country and certainly the world, is learning how to do things now with COVID reality where we can't have everybody together safely yet, um, social distancing and that sort of thing, and also kind of utilizing um, technology that um, we haven't used a lot before, certainly not here at Summit Ridge. And so I share this because I want to share with you that some of the things that our elders and, and staff are kind of wrestling with, and I share this just as kind of a heads up, is that we're learning and we're talking about and we're dreaming about how can we do things to still engage not only those of us who are here in person, but those of us who are, are tuning in, are, are worshiping with us online um, in terms of worship uh, and other things. And so one of the things that we're working on, just to let you know, is that we are working on some way that we can do prayer requests for people to submit prayer requests either through Facebook or some sort of texting, and that we would pray for those requests in our service as well. It's just a way for us to continue to help bring more participation in our worship service. Um, in addition to that, you know, how are we going to do the annual celebration that is going to be coming up and voting and all that kind of stuff? And we're looking at kind of doing uh, some online things as well as uh, uh, sending uh, everyone in the church some things as well. And so we're going to have more details about what that's going to look like. And so it's just kind of how we are just kind of in reality and where we are right now with this whole COVID situation. And so it's, it's frustrating. It's not always easy. Um, I was on a plane yesterday for three hours flying back from Wisconsin and having to wear a mask the entire time um, was, uh, you know, interesting to say the least. Sometimes I just want to smell something other than my mask. Right? Do you ever get that sense? I just want to smell something other than my mask. I'm just tired of smelling my, my nose or whatever else. I'm, I'm like, man, I really smell terrible. And I apologize to all of you for a bad breath at times. I mean, yeah, right? That's the best sermon right there. There it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just, I, you know, I, and there are just some times where I just find I take off my mask just to kind of be able to breathe. I was like, ah, different smell, you know, that sort of thing. And so I share that with all of you because um, it's not where we want to be. This is not ideal. But it is where we are. And that's okay. The gospel can still be preached. Jesus can still be worshipped. The church can still gather um, what I love about the scriptures is that, and, and I hear a lot of churches and a lot of pastors talk about, well, the churches ought to have a right to gather. Absolutely, absolutely, that's without a doubt. Churches have a right to gather. Here is what we don't have a right to, is to gather the way that we've always gathered in America and the way that churches have always gathered. Because if you really want to do it the biblical way, we should just, just all go to our homes and gather there. Because that's how the early church did it. Um, they didn't have enough. They didn't have any church buildings. They didn't have any sort of thing like that. They, they gathered in people's homes. Um, and so, you know, and even in, in the Old uh, New Testament, what I love is, is it never hides the imperfections of those who are ministering. And I love how Paul is preaching one night, most likely in a home, and a guy is on the, you know, he's on the second story of the home, right, where Paul is preaching, and the guy is sitting in the windowsill, most likely because it's the cool of the night, and he wants to get, you know, cooled off, and it's wonderful. And Paul is preaching and Paul is going on and on and on as I am doing right now. And he's not stopping. And the guy falls asleep, falls out of the second story window and dies. I mean, this is in the scriptures. This happens. Now, Paul being Paul says, don't worry, I got this. He goes down and he resurrects the man. 
I just want to tell you that I don't think, if you guys fall asleep and happen to fall out of your chair and die, I don't think I have that kind of power. I'll pray for you, and I will try to do the best I can. But um, the reality is, is that um, I just love those imperfections. The Scripture doesn't hide that stuff. And I share all that to say, listen, it's messy, isn't it? Ministry is messy. Ministry is not predictable. Ministry is incredibly difficult. And as we have been going through, and I didn't plan that introduction. Boy, it just kind of fed itself. Um, I should go away more often. Um, but as, as we have come into 2 Corinthians in this entire book, I, I think one of the things that we have seen through the three previous chapters of this book is that ministry is incredibly difficult. Paul is just sharing some really raw things about ministry. And not only his personal ministry, but also the ministry of the church in Corinth to whom he is writing to. And not only that, but ministry in general to every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Because whether or not we realize this, regardless of whether or not we're a part of a church or we're missionaries or whatever else, but even as Christians, every single one of us has a ministry. Has a ministry. We are in some ways ministering to other people. Whether we do that corporately as a church or individually as followers of Jesus Christ, we are all ministering. And ministry is incredibly difficult. And let me just give you some statistics just to show you how difficult ministry is in the sense of the impact that it can have and and just how hard it is. For instance, approximately 3,700 churches in the United States close their doors every single year. 3,700 churches just in this country close their doors every single year. Almost half of those who close their doors are church plants or church startups. So it's almost like starting a new business. Almost follows the same pattern as a new business. Most new businesses will close. Most new businesses don't survive the first few years. Here's the other thing, missionaries. In 2015, this was really interesting, this is sad to me, 7,000 missionaries left the mission field. That's about, one calculate about one every 15 minutes or so. A missionary quits. Not only that, not only do many of those missionaries who quit leave the mission field, but many of them leave the faith altogether. About 106 million people will switch their affiliation this year from religious to non-religious while about 40 million people are expected to come and enter into the Christian faith. When it comes to pastors, nearly one out of ten pastors who start out in the pastorate will retire as a pastor. One out of ten. The rest, 90 plus percent, will not. Average stay of a pastor at a church in ministry, depending upon if you're a senior pastor around five years, And then they move on. About five years. That's the average. It's it's unbelievable. And and those who quit the ministry most likely will not return. Ministry is really difficult, isn't it? Ministry is incredibly hard. And one of the reasons why I think it is so hard, why it is so difficult, is because we are, as Christians, swimming upstream against a world, and not only that, against an enemy who is hell-bent 
on thwarting and frustrating our efforts as Christians and as the church to help and minister and share the gospel with people. We have an enemy out there that is absolutely always trying to make our work frustrating and make our work difficult. And because of that, we are always, it seems like, going against the stream, fighting those headwinds, trying to make some sort of progress, and it is incredibly frustrating to do so. That we think and we look at all the lives that people have you know, had their lives changed because of Jesus Christ, and then we look at some of those same people and how they seem to go back to those lives, and it's incredibly frustrating. How we seem to think that some of the efforts that we are as a church, or maybe as Christians, who go out and serve others, and we're trying to make a difference in our community, and only to find that maybe many years later, very little difference has been met, or has been, has been realized. It's incredibly frustrating, because we have this enemy who is just absolutely bent on just doing whatever he can to make sure that we don't succeed in ministry. In fact, I love this quote by Pastor John MacArthur. He says this. He says, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive. Have we seen this in our culture? That, you know what? Sin is not really sin. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. As long as you do not harm others, it's good. We have seen a degradation in our society and in the world in general, I believe, of the fact of calling things that are wrong, wrong. Of calling things that are harmful, harmful. Of calling things that are destructive, destructive. Of calling things that could absolutely be incredibly selfish, Selfish. Right? But John MacArthur goes on and says this. Not only does Satan do that to make sin less offensive, because if he can get people to believe that our sins are less offensive, then why do we need Jesus? Honestly. Why do we need a Savior if what we are doing isn't, quite frankly, that bad? Here he goes on and says this. Not only is Satan trying to do that, he's also trying to make heaven less appealing. Less appealing. How does he make heaven less appealing? Well, I think there's lots of ways you can make heaven less appealing, right? Is to make this place more appealing. And by saying, if you go to heaven, you won't be able to do the things that you get to do here. You know? If you go to heaven, you won't be able to enjoy the things that you get to enjoy here. You, you know, we make it unrealistic. We make it kind of a, a, you know, this unbelievably flowery whatever image. And quite frankly, if if heaven is just filled with flowers and tulips and Unicorns, I don't know many guys who would ever want to go there. Right? I mean, it's just making it less appealing. Less appealing. And he goes on and he says this, And hell, less horrific, and then the last part is most concerning, and the gospel, less urgent. This is our challenge, church. This is the obstacle that stands before us. Not only collectively, but also individually as a church and as Christians. Is that we have this enemy out there and that's what can make ministry so difficult. So today, what hope is there for us? What kind of hope can the scripture share with us that can encourage us when it comes to ministry? 
This morning, I want to share with you what I think are five specific marks of ministry. And really, if I had to rename this sermon, I would call it uh, Paul's uh, you know, ministry according to the Apostle Paul. That's what I would call it. Ministry according to the Apostle Paul. However, I like today's title nonetheless, Five Marks of Gospel Ministry. Okay? And my hope is, is that as we take a look at these five specific things that Paul shares in today's passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is that maybe we can be hopeful, that we can be encouraged by this kind of ministry. And understand that in the end, regardless of how frustrating and how hard ministry is, we have Jesus Christ on our side. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to turn out okay. In fact, better than okay. It's going to turn out fantastic. And so this morning, let's take a look at these five marks of ministry. And in doing so, I also want to share with you a little bit about what ministry is and kind of a biblical perspective of ministry. So the first trait or first mark of ministry is this. Ministry is God-empowered. Ministry is God-empowered. Now, let's take a look at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, the first verse. Paul's, Paul writes the following. He says this, therefore, and remember, whenever you come across the word therefore, what do you ask yourselves? What is it there for? Okay. What is it there for? Good Bible study technique, right? Ask yourself, what is it there for? So clearly, Paul has just come off of chapter 3, which Eric shared with us last, last week. But by the way, that chapter at near the end also has a therefore. So you've got to go before that to find what the therefore is there for. Nonetheless, he's talking about ministry. I know, right? We could just go down that rabbit trail all day long. We're not going to go there. He says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, now that word ministry, Greek word diakonos, or diakonos, or diakonon. There's many variations of it. I'll just tell you this. We get our word deacon from that word, ministry. That's where we get the word deacon. That's the word that Paul is using here is the word that, that we call those who serve as deacons. That's where we get that word from, ministry. Now, it's interesting that if you take a look at that word ministry, where it kind of shows up almost early on in the church's history, in the New Testament, obviously there was a ministry that needed to be done in the church, in Acts, very early on. And I just love this about the scriptures. If anybody says, I want to go back to what the early church was like because it was so pure and holy and wonderful, I want to just say, have you read the New Testament? Have you read the book of Acts? They were just as messed up as we are today. You want to go back to that? Okay, you're going to have your own set of problems rather than the ones at least you have today. Now, maybe you want to trade those problems. I don't think so. Everyone thinks that other, other, other people's problems are less than theirs until you actually have them. Then you find out, well, maybe not so much, right? Nonetheless, this word was first early on used in the church's history in Acts when all of a sudden there were widows who needed to be cared for. There were Gentile widows and there were Jewish widows. And the Jewish widows were being taken care of more so than the Gentile widows. Why was that? Well, because guess who the earliest apostles and church members were? Jewish people. You take care of your own kind, right? It's just natural. It wasn't intentional. It was just natural. We gravitate towards those in our own culture groups, in our own racial groups. That is very natural. Look around us here. We're pretty monolithic when it comes to culture and race. 
right? We're pretty much that way. It's not a bad thing. It's just what is. The same thing was happening here. They were taking care of the Jewish widows more so than the Gentile widows. The Gentile widows rightly so said, listen, this is a problem. We also need to be cared for. We also are hurting here. And the apostles did something very smart. They did not say, well, sorry, you know, Jesus Christ was a Jew. We're Jews. Jesus Christ came for us, not for you. Sorry, tough luck. You know, God be with you kind of thing. They didn't say that. It would have been wrong, right? Instead, what the, the apostles did is they created a group of men uh, and they said, listen, appoint men among you who are good at serving. And these men, we will bless them in their ministry to these widows. And they are called, and they were called deacons. Okay? So you first come encounter this idea of a deacon. One who serves. One who ministers. Now, let me just say this. Yes, we have a deacon board here at Summit Ridge. That does not mean that if you are not a deacon that you don't serve. Wrong. Sorry. Yeah, right? Let the deacons handle it. Let the deacons take care of it. They're the ones who are called to serve. Yeah, all of us are called to serve. All of us, whether we realize it or not, are deacons. We have a deacon board who are specifically to, to, to serve matters of the church building and facilities and other things here at Summit Ridge. Uh, but all of us, in that sense, are deacons. Now, interesting that that Greek word, that it, it literally means, in many ways, and there's so many different ways of looking at this, it means um, that it's like waiting on tables. Gives a sense of kind of a waiter or a waitress. One who waits on tables. What is the job of a waiter and waitress? To serve, right? Right? And now in this country, we give them tips, and we base those tips on what? The level of service that they give us, right? If they notice that, if they, if that waiter or waitress doesn't come enough or soon enough when our drink needs to be refilled, uh, we're going to dock their pay. Right? If the food comes to us and it happens to be a little cold or it's the wrong order, right? We expect them to what? Fix it. Now, here's the difference. In this country, or for that matter, at any restaurant we may go to, we pay people to serve us. The reason why a waiter or waitress serves us is because we are paying them to do so. That is not the same thing that we have here when it comes to Christians ministering to other Christians or other people who may not be even followers of Jesus Christ. We don't get paid by them, and yet we still do it. Talk about how difficult that is. First of all, all of a sudden now, church ministry in the church was born out of conflict. There was a need that was there. Widows were not being cared for, as they should have been. Secondly... Not only that, is it born out of conflict, but in some ways, ministry, you are not paid to minister to another person. In other words, that other person to whom you may be ministering to has no leverage over you. None. They have no power over you. They have no authority over you. And yet you will become their servant as though you are a waiter or a waitress. In doing so. Right? Not only that, this idea of ministering is the process of relieving one of their necessities by meeting those necessities. Relieving one of those necessities by meeting those necessities. That's kind of this idea of what ministry is all about. So I struggle with this because I know that there are Christians and churches and theologians out there 
who maintain a theological perspective and argument, and I don't, and I understand the arguments. I've, I've, I've encountered these arguments for a long time, who say any Christian who is only about the relieving of material or bodily needs isn't truly doing the full scope of ministry. And they're, and they're right in that sense. Here is the other flip side of the coin. Any ministry that is only about the actual verbal, and I'm going to get controversial here, and those who are online, we're recording this, right? Or maybe the recording will dump today, and I'll be saved. Um, so anyways, uh, I'm on fire. Anyways, here's the thing is that any ministry that is only about the verbal proclamation of the gospel and not in any way concerned about relieving the absolute necessities that a person struggles with, I believe lacks that ministry as well. Full ministry. Ministry is both and, not either or. Ministry is about the proclamation of the gospel. And yes, verbally. About us sharing Jesus Christ. Verbally. And about us sharing with others who Jesus Christ is. Verbally. And it is also about helping them physically. Meeting their needs. Relieving them of their necessities by meeting their necessities. Notice it doesn't say wants or desires. Okay? It doesn't say those things. It's necessities. Think of a waiter and a waitress. They're concerned about making sure you're fed. That's a necessity. You have to eat. You have to drink. Those are necessities. Okay? Um, You don't have to sit in the most choicest place in the restaurant. That's not a necessity. You give them extra for that privilege. Right? But necessities. That's ministry in a nutshell from a biblical perspective here. From that one word, diakonon or deacon. Okay, I love how one person, Todd Wilson, wrote in a book called More. He said this about ministry. God, the creator, has uniquely designed each of us to function in ways that bring us purpose and significance. God equips us with a unique calling to play a specific role in accomplishing his mission on earth as we make disciples. In other words, ministry is also fulfilling a specific role that God has called you and I to in the process of of the Great Commission, which is in the end to make more disciples. In other words, ministry has an end. What is the end of ministry? To make more disciples. To make more disciples. And if people come to know Jesus because we are proclaiming the gospel, whether it's verbally or otherwise, and people come to know Jesus because we are helping to meet their necessities, praise be to God. We are fulfilling ministry. So Paul writes this. That's a lot in that one word. Since we have this ministry, what was Paul's ministry? Paul's ministry, by the way, was twofold. He not only, almost threefold actually, he not only preached the gospel to Gentiles, that was his, his very specific ministry, as he was called by God to do so, right? On that road to, to Damascus, when he encountered Jesus Christ in a real and personal way. Oh, and then by the way, he tells Paul right off the bat, or actually he doesn't tell Paul, he tells Ananias, who would eventually go and pray for Paul and have the scales fall off of Paul's eyes. Oh, don't worry. He is going, I'm calling him to suffer. In other words, Paul didn't realize it yet, but God was actually calling Paul into ministry, and as a result, he was going to suffer because ministry is difficult. So that was one. Number two is, is that he planted churches among the Gentiles. And number three is, he also was about the work of relieving the necessities 
of those who were in need of help. Specifically, the church in Jerusalem, in which he was going around, including the church in Corinth, asking for them to give generously, to help relieve the poverty that had struck that church. Paul encapsulates the holistic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right in there. That was his ministry. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul is writing here is that this is my ministry. Oh, and by the way, I receive this ministry not as a right, but out of an act of mercy that God called me to this ministry. In other words, the ministry that we have here at Summit Ridge or the ministry that all of us individually have, we need to know this. We have it not because we deserve it, not because we have a right to it, not because we have a special skill or giftedness, although that's incredibly necessary and helpful. We have it because God, out of the abundance of mercy, has said, you know what? I want you to join me in what I am doing to transform this world, and you get to play a role in that. Wow. Talk about an awesome calling. That is what, that is what ministry is is about here, is the fact that we are called by God first and foremost to join with Him in the work that He is doing and completely transforming this world, which, by the way, it's, it's His world still. Yes, Satan as certainly the prince of this world, but it's not His. He's not the king. Right? He will be vanquished. He will be defeated. No, 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 no. This world, whether we believe it or not, is going to be transformed. This world can exist in its present state forever. Yes, the world is dying. It, is in, it has been destroyed by sin. It has been tainted by sin, right? I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking me about, how is it, Dan, that people in the Old Testament lived to like so long, right? They lived to like 180, 400 years or 500, you know, all that kind of stuff. And now the Bible says that no one shall live past what? Anybody know that answer? 125, I think it is. 125 years old. Of course, we have those diets out there that are encouraging us to live to 180 kind of thing. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to live that long, but go for it, you know, kind of thing. At least you'll be healthy. Maybe. I don't know. Well-preserved when you do die. I don't know what it is. Eat some cake once in a while. Eat some ice cream. It ain't going to kill you. Well, a little bit. But you're dying anyways. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. And you all, know, you all know that what I'm saying is true. Come on. Have a French fry. You know? Sometimes, go to McDonald's and get the Big Mac. Right? Whatever else. Okay. Here's the thing. Is that we are in this because God called us to it. Think about this. Think about this. You and I have nothing inherently that good that we could offer to God. And yet God who saved us out of mercy, not because we deserve to be saved, says and turns around after saving us and says, okay, now that you are with me, now that you have proclaimed your faith in me, now that you are part of my family and I have called you a son and you have called me father, you go and you minister. Go and let's join, join in with what I am doing and let's go and minister and transform this world. Let's go and change people's hearts and lives. Do you realize that as Christians, we get to play a part in that? 
Think about that. If you're just sitting here thinking, well, why am I a Christian? What is it, you know, what is the end of this? The end is this, to make disciples, to go out there and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, to go out there and change people's hearts and lives by sharing the gospel and meeting their needs. Is that so difficult? Yes, it is. But it's awfully simple. It's awfully simple. That's what, that's what Paul is talking about here. It's God-empowered. We can't do this without God. At all. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, I think hammers it home so well. Peter realized what Paul is also writing. He says this, But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the... And I love this. If you have a Bible, if you have it open, if you have your Bible app, if you can highlight it, I would encourage you to circle high calling, underline high calling. It is not just a calling. It is a high calling. A high calling. Right? It is a high calling. I don't know if I'm... A, maybe it was my son who said this one point. I'm going to embarrass him. I'm sorry, son. He said this when, when asked if, if someone... I think someone asked him if... if if he was going to be a pastor or had a calling, he says, I don't want a calling, I just want a job. <laughs> right? He may not have remembered he said that, but, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but all of us as Christians, we have a calling. If for no other reason than that we were called by God in the midst of our sin, at just the right time, as Romans shares with us, Jesus Christ came and did what? Died for us. He rescued us. And Jesus calls out to us. And He's still calling out to the world to this day. Come to Me, all you who are weary and brokenhearted. And I will give you rest. That call is still there today. And as Christians, we need to make sure we are repeating that call. Because we have a world, whether it realizes it or not, that needs some rest. It's there. So Paul write, or Peter writes this. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Yes, we are all priests. Yes, we are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you think you need to be ordained for that or whatever else, sorry, we all have a role to play. Chosen to be a holy people. Set apart for this very specific purpose. God's instruments to do His work and speak out for Him. To tell others of the night and day difference He made for you from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. From rejected to accepted. Wow. That's God-empowered. No one, humanly, could have ever thought this up. No one. No one, humanly, could have given us this kind of power to enable us to do this kind of ministry. No one except God Himself. And so Paul, right off the bat, says, guess what? Ministry is God-empowered. Now, here's the second mark of ministry. Ministry is Spirit-led. Ministry is Spirit-led. Next verses here. Paul shares the following. And even if our gospel is veiled, and there was probably some sort of criticism that Paul was making the gospel difficult, that he was maybe shrouding it in some sort of language or some sort of 
arguments or reasoning that not everyone would be able to see the gospel or understand the gospel. And Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, who are dying, who are rejecting it, who have want nothing to do with it. They have made the decision they will not be followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if that is your decision, if that is your decision, the gospel will not make sense to you. You will reject the gospel. You will want nothing to do with the gospel if your decision is, I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. All right? That is what Paul is saying there, because we're all perishing, but there's a difference here. It's those who have intentionally rejected Jesus Christ. Then yes, the gospel means nothing. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, but of the glory of Christ who is the very image of God himself. In other words, there it is, Satan, who will come in and he will all of a sudden, if someone chooses not to accept Jesus Christ, not only that, Satan will come in and make sure that that decision will stick. Are there times that we can make the gospel awfully confusing? Yes. Are there times we can oftentimes not share the whole gospel? Without a doubt. And we do a great disservice by that. The gospel is so simplistic. It is so simplistic that even... I I heard this quote more, uh, and I'm going to mess it up, okay? But I'm going to share this quote as best as I can. The gospel is enough for a three-year-old to wade in and for an elephant to drown in. In other words, it is just unbelievably deep that, that people can absolutely just unbelievably be immersed in the gospel and yet understandable enough that even a three-year-old or a young person can grasp it. It's just beautiful. But here's the reality. Um, We can't accept the gospel without the movement of the Holy Spirit. We can't have that veil lifted without the Holy Spirit moving among us our lives and in our hearts. It just isn't possible. There is no way you and I sitting here today who have proclaimed ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ have done that because of our own power. It just isn't possible. We did it because the Holy Spirit empowered us to do it or led us to make that decision. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says this, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say by the same Spirit, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We are required to share the gospel. That's part of our ministry. But here's what we are not required to do. Get people to say yes. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job in leading that individual or individuals. And trust me, that Holy, the Holy Spirit is doing that. Whether or not the individual will allow that is up to them. We need to understand that as Christians, that if our thinking and sharing the gospel that someone's going to reject it, you're probably right. And you know what? Their rejection or acceptance is none of our or my responsibility at all. If you go back and say, I shared the gospel and they rejected it, It's heartbreaking, yes, but it's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. It's the Holy Spirit and that individual's responsibility. Stop taking responsibility for things that you and I cannot be responsible for. 
I'm asked, often asked, certainly as a pastor, I'm certainly, if you've been a Christian long enough, that you've, asked that you've been asked that one question, right? What if, the what ifs, I love the what ifs questions, right? The what ifs questions. You know, is that person going to hell, Dan? Is that person who did that crime going to hell? What if a person had never heard of Jesus, is that person now condemned to hell? You know what I say in oftentimes in a response like that is, guess what? That's not my, that's not my job. That's not my job. You could save a little flare if you want to. I don't get to decide, thankfully, who gets to go to heaven or who gets to go to hell. That is God's job and God's alone. He is the judge. And by far, he is a much better judge than I could ever be. You don't want me to make those decisions. Trust me. Trust me. I make bad decisions all the time. Just look at how I dress myself. I'm not always making the best decisions when it comes to that. Right? I've got my kids telling me all the time, what you, seriously, I've, I've reached the age now where I've earned that right to dress like a dad. I get to wear a goofy tie or a bow tie if I want to, right? doesn't matter. There are things that we're responsible for and there are things we're not responsible for. The Spirit leading is an important aspect of ministry. Paul was led by the Spirit. That doesn't mean that he was always successful in what he was doing. In fact, there are times when he was led by the Spirit in the cities and he was beaten and he was tossed out and he still went back in for more. Because he knew his responsibility was to share the gospel. It wasn't his responsibility to get people to say yes. And the worst thing we can do as Christians is try to manipulate the gospel presentation to get people to say yes to Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I believe we're doing it out of the best of intentions, but also I think oftentimes we're doing it out of selfish intentions. Let it go. Let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do. Let us do what we need to do. That's the way this works. Spirit-led. Third aspect of ministry, probably one of the most important, I'll go there, is this. Ministry is Christ-centered. Ministry is Christ-centered. Now, verses 5 through 12, Paul shares the following. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and as ourselves, as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Did you get that? Who do we preach? Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ. One of the things I love and one of the things I oftentimes can forget about ministry is when we get when I get into some sort of disagreement or some aspect of I don't know what to do next or whatever else, I oftentimes forget about the fact of just looking to Jesus the person. The one in the scriptures. And to say, it's all about Him. Yes. When I get tripped up on things, oftentimes it's because I'm thinking of myself. And then i got to go back to the Scriptures. Oh, it's about Jesus. This is about preaching Jesus. That's all it is. And by the way, Jesus said it Himself. If the world hates me, and He was saying this to His disciples, guess what? The world is going to hate you all. You plural. It's just a reality. The world hates me, Jesus said. The world is going to hate all of you because you're preaching my message. And my message isn't a popular one. My message is a hard message. My message is going to make people angry. Not just even what we might consider ordinary people, but those in power. They will make them angry as well. 
because we preach a gospel message that is not only concerned about the verbal proclamation, but also about meeting the necessities of those individuals. And when you start doing some of that stuff, you start making waves. Because it's not easy. He goes on and he says this. But, and this is wonderful, we preach Jesus Christ, He's perfect, He is wonderful, and this is the beautiful thing about our partnership in this whole thing with Jesus. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You and I, were earthen vessels. We really are. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaking, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body of the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in all of you. I love that. Jesus Christ has instilled with us, has trusted us, normal, earthly, broken people with His message to go out there and to share it. Oh, and by the way, in doing so, it's going to be really difficult. We're going to be crushed. People are going to reject us. We're going to go through hard times. It's going to happen. And yet here we are doing this. I'm reminded of just how unique this is, earthly vessels. This past week when I was in Wisconsin, my aunt had shared and kept some ceramic things. I don't even want to claim ownership on them. I'm trying to get her to throw them away. Of things I think I made, I, I wasn't confessing this. I'll confess this to every one of you here. I, I, she, she, she believes I made them in high school. I made them in college. Um, I took a ceramics class because I thought it would be an easy class. It was one of the hardest courses I ever took in college. It was horrible. Um, so I, one Christmas as a poor college kid, I gave my family a lot of my ceramic stuff I had made. Because they made great gifts and it was personal. I mean, I wasn't trying to make them bad or anything. It was just, this was good. My aunt kept it 20 some odd years later. And I'm looking at these things. I think it was yesterday she brought them out before I flew back. And I'm looking at these things. These are, these are awful. Would you throw these things away? There is nothing redeemable about these things. Would you just, I mean, look at, they don't sit straight. They're tilted. I don't know what kind of thing I was doing there. I think I was just doing it out of, it was just horrible. And the colors I had painted these things or glazed it with was just awful. Just awful. And my aunt's trying to say, but Dan, sometime down the line, when your kids, I want to try to see if your kids are interested in having them. Sometime down the line, they're passing pictures of this around, I'm sure. Um, is that sometime down the line, is when your kids have it, your kids can say, hey, your grandfather. Or their kids could say, your great-grandfather made this. I don't want that legacy. <laughs> so my aunt is trying to, literally on the way to the airport yesterday, my aunt is trying to, you know, asking my wife, hey, text Maggie. Maybe she would like some or something like that. And Maggie finally responds and says, yes, I would like it. But then she confesses, because I think it would make your aunt happy. <laughs> when I think of that, I think of us, these earthly vessels. My word. We're broken down. We, you know, we are not perfect. 
I mean, we even want to say to ourselves, oh, why? Just, let's just end this now. Let's just get rid of this stuff, okay? I don't want this to be my legacy. And yet in the midst of all that, we have this unbelievable treasure in the gospel that God has entrusted to us. Not because we can shine, but what? He can shine. Yeah, let me tell you a story. That's why there's no such thing as a bad or a horrible or a boring transformation story of a person coming to know Jesus. Because sometimes you want to look at someone, Jesus did that? Well, that, that truly had to be Jesus because there's no way you could have ever wound up that way without Jesus. What a special thing that God in our weakness, and Paul says it, in our weakness, what? He is strong. He is strong. He is strong. So yes, let me share with you this. In sharing in ministry, we are going to mess up. We are going to do things that are wrong at times. We are going to get it wrong. We are going to serve in a way that may not have been helpful, but may actually have been somewhat harmful, whatever it is. And yes, it will be imperfect. And yes, it will not be exactly the way we have pictured it. And yes, we will do it. And it will be hard. And it will be achy. And it will be you know, just